We're in the book of James. We're in the first chapter. I'll begin in verse 16 and read the balance of the chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Three times in this passage, James, the brother of our Lord, the author of this epistle to the churches generally throughout the Christian community in the first century, Three times James says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived and don't deceive yourselves. Apparently there is a deception that overcomes us and we don't see certain things. And the main point that James is going to make, which this is a two-part series, I understand. Chad is preaching in the next two hours and he has divided it for us thusly. And the burden of the passage is sort of summarized in that very last phrase, to keep oneself unstained from the world. He's going to talk about being a doer of the word as opposed to being just a hearer. He's going to talk about some very practical things with regard to speech and with self-control with perseverance. In other words, what he's asking us to do, James is asking us to do the same thing that Peter, in both of his epistles, asks us to do as believers, and that is to grow up, to become mature, to, to move along and progress in the Christian faith, in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord in our understanding, in our perspective 
that enables us to really be a different person, living a different life than those round about. The real concern so often, as we said, that these Catholic epistles, these epistles from Hebrews to Revelation that appear in the Scriptures, are to ward off apostasy, that is, falling away from the faith, and heresy, that is, incorrect false teaching, incorrect doctrine and false teaching. And so that's where James is driving us. And these, these epistles are enormously practical in the sense of giving us a lot of how-to. However, what I want to spend our moments on this morning is one of those little passages that sort of uh, stands as a pillar in the text. And it's found there in verses 16, 17, and 18, the very first portion of this particular passage. Um, this is a passage I would like to suggest is intensely Christological and Christocentric. It has to do with Christ. He is not named, but He is here everywhere. And I want you to see it because it is only, it is only as we learn to see Christ and to have a vision of Him and understand Him as He is presented to us in the Scriptures do we begin to conform to that image and are changed into His likeness and become like Christ and therefore become truly Christian like Christ. And so that little passage there I think is very, very helpful. Uh, the practical matters we'll look at next week about uh, being slow to uh, anger and uh, slow to speak and looking into the law of liberty and the standard of righteousness, the righteousness that God expects, the ethical dimensions of Christianity, how we are to then live as believers. But let's not try that without getting a clear picture of Christ first. And that's what I want us to do in the moments we have. And there he is in verses 16, 17, and 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Here we know, of course, that James is speaking to Believers, he says, brethren, he's speaking as a father to children, as St. John does in his letters. He's speaking of the beloved ones, the loved ones. But I, I hear a tone in that phrase, and that is a plaintive tone. It's a tone of him pleading with us as we would plead with our children and our grandchildren to behave and to have the right perspective and the right attitude and to approach things on a more mature level as we are raising them to be mature adults. And so that's what I hear in there. James is, is saying that he wants us to grow up and he wants us to move and to be more like Christ. He says every good and perfect gift comes from above. It comes from the Father of lights. Now the good and perfect gift that is spoken of here, it's two different words that are used but they're virtually used interchangeably, a good gift and a perfect gift. But the perfect is that word teleos, which means maturity. In other words, the things that lead to maturity, the good gifts, the things, the gifts of the Spirit, the gifts that God gives us. And the supreme gift of all is the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. And this all comes from above. Oh, there's a sovereignty in our salvation that we need to recognize. And James will point it out here pretty quickly. And that is that whatever we have spiritually, whatever maturity, whatever strength, whatever um, 
solidity and soundness that is in our character as Christians comes from above. It's a gift. Earlier he'd said, if you lack wisdom, ask and the Lord will give. Well, if you lack maturity, if you lack self-control and the competence to live as a Christian, ask because it's a gift. It's a bestowal. It's an endowment. It's an inheritance that is given to us from above. The father of lights is an interesting phrase, isn't it? It's not used anywhere else in Scripture. And it's actually a euphemism. Of course, we've pointed out who James is. He is a very devout Jew, and his entire career was spent in the city of Jerusalem as, of course, not one of the original disciples, but certainly one of the group of believers that uh, came along, and he eventually became the pastor in Jerusalem or the bishop in Jerusalem. Several times in the New Testament we find historical references to James. And James, as such, had the same aversion that most devout Jews had in the, in the early centuries in that they didn't use the name of God directly or even pronounce the name of God. They would often use substitutes and they would use uh, euphemisms. And here's one of them, Father of Lights. And what that brings to mind, to the Jewish perspective, is the very first verses of the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, where it talks about God creating, using the creative language of let there be light. And then we notice later in the creation, the actual creation and formation of the physical instruments of light, the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets. And so the picture here is, first of all, of creation. In a moment we'll see the picture will move to that of Redemption, and here we have creation, the Father of lights. It is God who created the physical universe. It is also the Lord who creates in our hearts the new creation, the new creature in Christ. The Father of lights in whom there is no variation. No shadow of turning. It's interesting, if you think about it for a moment, the, the physical universe is filled with the lights that have nothing but variation. The sun varies all day long in its appearance as it arises in the east and moves across the sky in incremental measure. We clock our lives and our time by that various movement all across the sky until we have the last rays of the sunset. The eclipses of the sun and the moon, shadows, variation, turning, changing, the rotation of the stars, what appears to be the rotation of stars is actually the rotation of the earth, but the movement across the heavens of the stars, the changes, the, the variations, the movements of the planets, and all of these things indicate that there is in the creation this movement, but in the Creator, there is an immutability, there is an unchangeability. I am the Lord, I change not. There is a dependability. There is a clear expectation of who He is and who He will always be. And so that is the one who's referred to, the one who gives the perfect gifts is the one who has this particular characteristic of immutability. And all of creation is 
a gift of God. It arises out of God's heart for giving. He puts the good things out there. He looks at the creation and he says, it's good. Good gifts. Perfect gifts. There you see Christ. Now we move from creation to redemption. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. This is the language now of new birth. This is what you read about in John in this conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus that we looked at last year about this time. Being born from above. Good gifts coming from above. Here's a good gift from above. New birth. It is of God's will that we have this new birth. Our will, of course, is active in it, but not before His will has determined it. Our will participates in our choosing and receiving Christ, but only after His will has inseminated our souls and brought us from death to life, given us this new birth. It is not our choice in the matter that is ultimate. Our choice is consequential. Our choice is, is a result of His choice, of His own will. And when we speak of the will of God, we're not talking about just some objectifying the Lord says, well, it could be A or it could be B or it could be C. Uh, I choose door number three. That's not the way God's work, will works God's will is his whole volitional soul. It is all that God is, his loving heart, his infinite mind, and all of his mercy, his love and grace, his justice, his holiness, everything that God is, his power and his might, has all rolled into a volitional empowerment where he says, I'll do this. I am the Lord. I have decreed it to be so. That's the will of God that brought you salvation. Oh, is that a good gift coming from above? From the Father of lights, the creator of all, who not only created the heavens and the earth and the stars and all that is there, the heavens declare the glory of God, but there is a creation within your own heart that is the creative work of the inseminating Word of God. The person that said it as well as anyone is, is a good friend, an associate, a fellow laborer. Peter, the Apostle Peter, says this, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. That's Peter quoting Isaiah, supporting James, preaching Christ. And here's the summary of it, the very next verse, verse 25. But the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. 
the gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. It was the gospel that bears within it the word of God, the truthfulness of God, the word of truth it's called here in our text. Truth is faithfulness, reliability, dependability, accuracy. But most important, it is effectiveness. It is real in the sense that it works and it performs. The word of the Lord goes forth, the Bible says, and it accomplishes that which the Lord sends it forth to do. And the word by the Spirit of God has inseminated that's literally what the word seed means. It's the word semen. Has inseminated your soul. And now the Father of lights has become the Father of you. You've been born again with spiritual birth. Now, finally, let's look at this last little phrase here that's so beautiful. That we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. In other words, God has, has brought us forth and He's made out of us a creature. Paul calls it, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he calls it a new create, creature. He says, we are a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. So we're kind of a creature we are some kind of a creature now by God's creation. And what kind of creature would it be? Well, it's a kind of first fruits. First fruits. I wonder how many of us know what that means exactly. Well, let's take a look real quickly. We've got to see what a first fruit is. So let's go back quickly to the Old Testament. You don't have to turn there, but it might be helpful if you did. <laughs> Way back when Moses was on the mountain and the Lord was giving him all the things he needed to know, one of the things that he spoke of to Moses was the feast of first fruits. And basically, to summarize historically, Moses said, the Lord said to Moses, When you come into the land, you're going to start planting crops. And when you plant these crops, these crops are going to mature. And when these crops mature, and it's specifically mentioned later on in the book of Deuteronomy, he's speaking of the wheat, the wheat and the barley crops. When they mature, there'll be a harvest. And I'm going to put around that harvest and around that a, a ceremony that's going to teach you some spiritual things. And this is for all practical purposes, what the Lord does. He says there'll be an, a feast of ingathering, a feast of the harvest. And it will, it will have some significant things in it. And let me read here what uh, is spelled out then when Moses reports to the people in 23 of Leviticus. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you will bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priests. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, 
you shall offer a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephod, a fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hen. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched nor fresh, until this same day when you have brought the offering to the Lord. Well, you say, Ron, that's Old Testament, you know, that's, that's what they did back then, that's ceremonial, that's symbolic, and that was kind of that ancient nomadic people doing their religious cultic worship service. Listen to what the Lord says in the very next verse. Until you have brought the offering of the Lord to your God, it is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. What the Lord's talking about, something that's forever, something that's eternal. Well, what's in this passage that might be eternal? Well, we're out of time, but let me mention three things very quickly. One is this lamb, this male lamb, this yearling without blemish, without spot, perfect, holy, righteous lamb of God offered as a sacrifice. That's Christ. That's what the first fruits are all about. It's Christ. And notice here also that in other places, I don't have a couple of other passages, I don't have time to read them, but basically the first fruits were the best of the fruit. The best of the fruit. They wouldn't bring any kind of fruit that was any kind of stalk that would make up the sheaf that was waved before the Lord. You wouldn't have sheaves in there that had mold in it and that had worms in it or that had only been half. Uh, heads that have only been half made. You would have a full stalk with healthy grain. And you would bring a healthy animal. The first fruits were the best fruits. The first fruits were the first fruits. You gave to the Lord the grain before you ever did anything for yourself. Now I know if you're a farmer and you've waited for the harvest, and as soon as you harvest, you're ready to start doing something with the, with the produce. No, the very first goes to the Lord. There's a lot of teaching there about what belongs to the Lord. The first fruits, the first fruits of your soul, the first fruits of your labor, the first fruits of your time, the first fruits of your money. The, first, the doctrine of first fruits all through Scripture shows that the first is the best and the first belongs to the Lord. Of course, that's who Christ is. He was the best and He belonged to the Lord. He was offered to the Lord. But look at two other little elements there. You shall take the grain and you shall take two-tenths of an ephod. Now ephod was a, about three-fifths of a bushel and then two-tenths, one-fifth of that three-fifths. is we got, a little, we got a little batch right here about this size. Made a good, good dough and mixed with fine oil. What you had here was, a, was bread living bread bread and then what was else was part of this ceremony a drink offering which shall be of wine a fourth of a hen a hen's about a liter so you got a fourth of a liter you're down to about what a cup and a half or maybe something less than a pint you got a small amount you've got a loaf and you have wine that's Christ that's the body and blood of Christ. 
That's what the first fruits are. We're to be first fruits like Christ. And that, of course, is what we see. And it's not something that's only temporary with Israel. It's a statute forever. These are eternal truths taught. If we are to be like Christ, we must see Him as He is. See Him as the Lamb of God that was slain to take away the sins of the world. And let's bring it down to our own lives to take away my sin, your sin. And we are to know Him and we are to enjoy Him and fellowship with Him and commune with Him through the loaf and the wine.